up on today's show, when will the pandemic be over? Well, here in Canada, getting pretty close. Liberals looking to regain some ground in Alberta, some high-profile candidates entering the race as we anticipate a federal election, and the Olympics open July 23rd. In spite of all kinds of challenges, Global News, uh, Rachel Gilmore, a reporter with Global News, recently took a look at the state of the pandemic versus, you know, Canada versus the rest of the world and where we're at. So let's chat with her now and find out what she found through her reporting. Uh, Rachel, thank you for joining us. Appreciate your time this morning. Hey, of course, anytime. You know, so we take a look at what's going on here in Alberta with the stampede and everything else. We've pretty much returned to pre-pandemic living here. Um, The question, though, I guess, you know, we're seeing a lot of the similar actions happening across the country, things reopening and things like that. But um, should we be, I mean, you managed to speak with a number of experts that are looking into this across Canada. What do they think? Are we, I don't want to say done with the pandemic, but you know what I mean. (laughs) I know, it's such a hopeful idea, right? But um, in in the Canadian context, the overarching theme that emerged from the infectious disease specialist is that we're basically just about there. So um, I think the the key is that the vaccines work incredibly well. So, you know, you once you're vaccinated and fully fully vaccinated with two doses, um, although you might still have a small chance of catching the virus, It's basically like it cuts the claws off it. It turns it from like a scary dog to, uh, you know, maybe just a slightly annoying puppy. <laughs> but it's not going to land you in the hospital, most likely. So and, and the thing that causes lockdowns and, you know, affects our lives is when the hospitals get stretched to the, the limits because they're full. So yeah. the, the vaccine is really the ticket out of this. And we're we're just about there. Yeah, we're we're seeing it in Canada. And you take a look at our vaccination rates, which continue to climb and now becoming a world leader in terms of how many people are vaccinated. Um, But when you take a look at what's going on globally, Rachel, it's an entirely different story. Absolutely. And, you know, that's sort of the key because, you know, once you get past the basic sort of ethical question that, you know, every human life matters, um, it's also a risk for us here because there's some parts in the world that are only, you know, they have 1% of their population maybe with one dose. And the way that variants get created is because the virus is allowed to spread and has more chances to replicate kind of uncontrolled because every time it replicates, it can make a mistake. And when that mistake happens, it could be a mistake that's advantageous for the virus. So it lets it spread faster or even maybe Mm -hmm. makes it more deadly. Um, So it's a risk um, if we kind of have these areas of crazy uncontrolled spread because that's how variants happen. Um, so, you know, it, it's a problem for those parts of the world where they're facing, you know, the case counts are still going up globally. Um, if you look at Indonesia, they're running out of oxygen, yep. you know, they're really still in it. And then it's also a threat for our progress here back home because, you know, variants are sort of the one real unknown at this point that could really threaten us. And we're sort of getting to this point now where um, there's a lot of talk about how inequitable it has been in terms of rolling out these vaccines. When you have countries like Canada that are, are seeing mass vaccination rates and other countries are down around 1%, 2%. So that seems to be the big focus now is what do the rich countries and what does the global community do to try and um, deal with that imbalance and get vaccines to the people that really, really need them? And that's 
sort of the big question right now, right? So the WHO is really kind of pressing um, countries to donate their excess vaccines. I mean, if you look, you know, we, we bought so many vaccines yeah. from AstraZeneca, for example. We, we have a lot of um, supply coming in. So any that aren't being used, we really should be firing out to these countries and, and really helping them. Um, you know, there's a question about whether the pharmaceutical companies can kind of ramp up their efforts or their their charity <laughs> in that respect. Yeah, you know, yeah. Pfizer Pfizer did uh, you know make 3.5 billion in revenue um, in the first quarter of 2021. Uh, we don't know how much of that actually turned into profit um, from the vaccines, but they they brought in 3.5 billion. Um, so you know they're they're making money from this, and and there's the question of. Should they be making that much money when there's parts of the world that can't afford the job? And, you know, really, that threatens all of us. So so it's kind of a big question of of ethics and, you know... um, it's one of those big life questions. It is. It really is. <laughs> yeah. Um, what about the patent? Do you know anything about that? I mean, there's so much talk and so much discussion right now about lifting the patent so that other companies can jump in and fill the gap. I know there's been discussions. That would certainly help, too. Absolutely. Because if you lift the patent, um, other companies in other parts of the world can, you know, create the vaccines themselves. Right yeah. now, um, there's copyright issues involved, right? So uh, it, it gets really tough for other manufacturers to jump in and just kind of boost the supply. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I mean, there are a lot of things. And unfortunately, you know, we, we do live in a world where companies worry about their profits and they worry about their bottom lines and and we're this is one of those big examples where you have to question sort of what the limits of that are rachel thanks so much for your work i appreciate the update of course thank you anytime that is rachel gilmore a political journalist with global news and as i say if you want to check out her story she took a a close look and spoke to a number of different experts in our country in terms of where we families have a lot going on let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Stand. So I think most Canadians are expecting that we'll be heading to the polls in a federal election sometime this fall. Most experts are saying sometime in September or October, uh, most likely. Uh, We saw the Prime Minister in our province last week trying to drum up support, uh, talking about um, the Green Line in Calgary. Uh, Some high-profile candidates defecting to the Liberals, perhaps. Well, not defecting, but moving out of civic politics to the Liberals. We'll see. Uh, Bad news for the Conservatives today. Some new polling done by Abacus uh, came out this morning. Aaron O'Toole uh, is far and away the least popular of the national political leaders. 20% of Canadians say they have a positive view of Aaron O'Toole. 40% say they hold a negative view of Aaron O'Toole. Uh, Leadership is certainly an issue for the Conservatives. But is there enough room there for the Liberals to actually make gains in the province of Alberta? Not a single MP elected here. Let's chat with Kelly Kreiderman now, a reporter from the Globe and Mail, uh, who covers politics, of course. Hi, Kelly. Thanks for joining us. 
Hi, nice to be here. So, yeah, uh, the Prime Minister traveling to Calgary, day before the stampede, before an election call. <laughs> kind of interesting. He's not in the heat of things, but maybe get that one out of the way early. Is that the thinking? I think so. He was not dressed in cowboy gear. No. <laughs> he was wearing. He was in uh, business casual attire, and you know it is. It is, and I don't think he's going to be back uh, for the stampede. That would be a normal thing for politicians. It's a muted stampede this year, um, especially when it comes to politics. It's usually well, a lot of politics uh, here in Calgary during the stampede, but it's it is definitely muted this year, and I think. You know, uh, getting a trip to Alberta out of the way, doing uh, a reannouncement of federal funding for the Green Line, the new light rail uh, transit project in Calgary, is, is a good one. And at the, the same week uh, that the Prime Minister was here last week, there were, the Liberal Party also acclaimed um, two two candidates yeah. in uh, Calgary, and you know. It does make people wonder uh, whether, and they're two fairly high-profile candidates, it does make people wonder whether they actually hold out some hope of winning um, in the city again. It's a big hill to climb. I mean, you've got zero MPs from the province of Alberta, so you could understand why the Prime Minister would sort of write it off. But like you say, there is some some high-profile candidates that could enter this race. Mm -hmm. And in Calgary, uh, the two candidates are... George Tahal, who is the current city councillor for Ward 5 in the city's northeast, it's a uh, very multicultural, working-class riding. It's a riding, or, and, his, and his, uh, his, uh, his municipal boundaries overlaps with the federal riding, of course, of Calgary Skyview, which is a riding that did go liberal in 2015 with Darshan Kang, who did uh, step down from federal politics uh, following uh, some problems there. And, of course, um, there's also a man named uh, Murray Stiegler who is running and who has been acclaimed in Calgary Confederation, which hasn't gone liberal for uh, ever, <laughs> but was a right. very close race in 2015. And I think there's some potential here. And of course, in Edmonton, the big speculation is uh, whether you know Don Ivins, yeah. who is leading uh, municipal politics, will run in. You know, it's not something he has totally dampened down, and certainly you know, there's a lot of alignment in his political thinking in the federal liberals. And I think there is some room there for there to be a lot of speculation about whether he will jump into federal politics or not. That's been rumored for a long time, Kelly, as you mm-hmm. know. Um, what about Nenshi? A lot of speculation about him. He's a little more um, resistant, in, at least publicly, uh, to jumping into the federal yes. arena. My- is you know he you know he has uh, it's been he's been mayor for eleven years and my understanding is you know federal politics uh, partisan politics maybe someday but not right now right. Uh, is my sense especially now that uh, the liberals have candidates in Calgary it's it, it would be hard to imagine and he has very carefully said that he is not partisan one way or the other of although you know. You know, we did see a lot of praise between him and the Prime Minister here in Calgary yes. last week. There is some, some overlap and also some mutual political enemies. So, you know, that sometimes makes for allies as well. And the Prime Minister in his comments last week, and it's a fair point, I think, and he made a good point in terms of, um, you know, when you take a look at anything that has happened in Alberta under Amarjeet Sohi, that's because we had a voice at the table. Um, and so mm-hmm. he was sort of pointing out that it does serve Albertans to at least have some representation. I don't think that's going to sway a whole lot of people, but it's an interesting point. 
That, that's a really good question. I think I don't know if that point alone uh, gets people to vote no. for the federal liberals. And, you know, he, and of course, Amarjeet Sohi is now running for mayor in Edmonton. But uh, when Justin Trudeau was in Calgary last week, he pointed out a number of times in interviews he did that having Mr. Sohi at the cabinet table did allow for the views of Alberta to be heard. And, you know, he talked about how the federal government invested in the Trans Mountain Pipeline yep. expansion and pointed out that the rest of the country doesn't necessarily see that project in the same light as many Albertans. And I, I think, though, it will take more than just that, pointing that out to win. It, it, there's only a few ridings in Alberta where there's a snowball's chance, right, to be yeah. clear, for, for one thing. And, and they are ones like Edmonton Centre or Calgary Centre or Calgary Skyview or Edmonton Mill Woods. But there, there also has to be, I think, a shift in politics from 2019 when the anger at the federal government was really, really high in Alberta. And the question is, now that we think that the pandemic might be easing, do we go back to, do we just go back in time to pre-pandemic times or has the pandemic shifted politics? Um, you know, is there more, I guess, is, is there less dislike for the federal government because, you know, a lot of the federal programs have been very helpful for individuals and businesses in Alberta throughout this time. I know in Calgary, there are, there are offices in downtown Calgary that are only open because of the wage subsidy program right now. Right. And, and does that, and does, you know, we know that Jason Kenney is facing a lot of criticism on both the left and the right for his handling of the pandemic. Does that anger towards the provincial UCP government, does that translate in any way into support for the federal liberals? And, and I think that's a question because you did see Justin Trudeau, you know, uh, taking some shots at Jason Kenney last week, talking about his stance on equalization. Of course, the premier is holding a referendum on whether equalization should be a part right. of the Constitution in the fall. And Justin Trudeau pointed out Jason Kenney was part of the federal cabinet that approved or at least stood by equalization in its current form. Of course, the premier would argue the days that he was in the federal government, it was a lot different. Alberta Things was changed. booming then. Yeah. Yes, and that, there, that the take on equalization is, is during much changed circumstances. The premier will make that point. So do you see Justin Trudeau making a point of singling Jason Kenney out and trying to associate all conservatives together? Because someone like Jason Kenney or Rob Ford in Ontario, they have taken a lot of hits. They sure have, yeah. Um, political hits through the pandemic. And if, uh, if the prime minister heading into an election can associate Aaron O'Toole with the unpopularity of those premiers, he, he might get ahead as well. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's an interesting time. Um, I guess we'll have mm -hmm. to watch and see, and I, as you say, a few big names potentially poised on the sidelines that we'll have to keep yeah. an eye on. So uh, it's going to be interesting. Thanks, Kelly. I appreciate your time. Thanks so much. That is Kelly Kreiderman, uh, Global Mail reporter based in Calgary. We're going to start, though, by talking about the Olympics, which uh, just a head-scratcher. July 23rd. They're set to start in Tokyo, and uh, they're going to happen. Despite all of the challenges that we have seen, they kick off uh, more than a year delayed, and 
all kinds of controversy, but they're going to go ahead. Um, there won't be any spectators. The Japanese public have overwhelmingly said they don't want them, and they're likely going to be held as most, if not all, of the host country is under a state of emergency as COVID cases continue to rise and vaccination is very, very slow. So why is this happening? Let's see if we can get some insight from our guest, Dr. Helen Jefferson Lenski, who is a professor emerita of sociology and equity studies and education at the University of Toronto. Professor, thank you for joining us this morning. I appreciate your time. My pleasure. Good to be with you. So the first question, and I've asked several different guests this question over the past few weeks, why on earth are these Olympic Games even being held? (laughs) Well, good question. Um, My position is the IOC is forcing Japan to go ahead because they can. They do have the power to do that. The host city contract uh, gives no power to the host city or the host country or to the government of that country. It gives all the power to the IOC in terms of decisions about cancelling or postponing. And uh, there's apparently in the host city contract a rather weak clause that protects the host city against what we used to call acts of God or forces of nature, that sort of thing. Um, It's unlikely, according to legal experts, it's unlikely to be applied in this case. So the IOC says they go ahead, they go ahead. It will be primarily a made-for-television spectacle, and uh, that's the way it is. So when you say they're forced to go ahead... It's financial then? There would be a huge cost to Tokyo to saying we're not doing this? Is that what we're looking at? Exactly. It's been estimated at $17 billion that Japan, Tokyo and Japan, uh, would be on the hook for if they decided from their position to postpone them or cancel them. Now, the IOC, of course, has a bit of a reputation uh, for many different things, but this really seems to rise to a new level. Um it seems concerning to me that they would go ahead and force this. What would their reasoning be for being so adamant that these games must go ahead despite all of the challenges they face? They would suffer financially okay. um, if they postponed or canceled for a second time. On the other hand, um, there is a little bit of power uh, on the part of the host city because if it would really be bad for the brand if the IOC forced Japan to go ahead under these circumstances. If Japan, um, you know, it's hard to see the sort of a, a bit of a ping-pong game where the power goes back and forth, but it all tends to land in the IOC's court. So there's not very much uh, negotiation that the host city can do. And that's kind of interesting, too, because, I mean, you take a look at the government officials in Japan. Uh, They have been very vocal about this. Medical experts, journalists, indeed, even the athletes that are going to be competing in these games have all said, yeah, we're not sure this is a good idea. Um, IOC just has no interest in listening to anybody but themselves? Pretty much. Um, They'll make a kind of token effort to look as if they're listening, but... Sometimes in unguarded moments, they really, you know, blurt out something like Thomas Bach at some point saying referendums are just stupid and and unnecessary and why would people think that uh, citizens of a host city, uh, a bid city, had to vote on something like this? Uh, So they they do uh, sometimes show their true colours, but most of the time they just kind of give the impression through their very skilled public relations people give the impression that they're listening but they're taking all the precautions to protect the athletes because 
the fact there's a waiver in the athlete's contract that says if I get sick or die of COVID, the IOC is not responsible. I, I waive any rights to sue them. That's written into the athlete's contracts? Mm-hmm, yeah. And this is a first. Well, COVID is a first, but apparently the last Summer Olympics, uh, Rio 2016, there were some uh, clauses about absolving the IOC or a waiver to do with uh, athletes' health, but it didn't specify um, getting ill or dying through disease or heat-related illness or COVID. Uh, so they've, huh. they've escalated their um, sort of covering their ass, so to sure. speak. Sure, yeah, exactly. Um, now, as we say, they, you know, they'll pay some token lip service to people who raise concerns. I- I've heard they're actually trying to quiet voices of dissent, censoring people and shutting down anybody who's coming out and saying this is not a good idea. Have you heard anything about that? Absolutely, yeah. Um, I spoke to a journalist who did not give me permission to give any details, but uh, this was completely authentic. I heard it straight from this person who said that they had written something critical of the IOC in a major U.S. media outlet, and they'd immediately got uh, a rebuke, reprimanded. Uh, They'd been contacted by a senior IOC person who said, uh, you shouldn't have written that. Uh, basically, I have another anonymous contact who has given me permission to talk about their experiences as a representative of um, their country on the Athletes Commission, which are retired Olympic athletes. And that person told me uh, they had uh, about they were about to publish something critical of an Olympic-related organisation, and they got a phone call from a very senior Australian. IOC member um, saying, are you sure you want to have that published? And my contact said yes. And then they got um, more follow-up information to try to persuade them not to publish it and follow-up phone call. And they did proceed. Good on them. They published it. And uh, that was the end of it. But some of their friends said to them, uh, aren't you worried that uh, there'll be some repercussions? Even for a retired Olympic athlete, um, there's that hanging over their heads. Wow. Um, In terms of the athletes themselves, I guess they have the choice to not go, but that's that's a very difficult choice for people who have dedicated their entire lives to this pursuit and see this as their one and only opportunity, right? I mean, it's not as easy as saying, well, I'm just not going to do it. Exactly. And they would feel, as well as their own, like the huge chunk of their lives, their young lives that they've dedicated to this, to their training, um, they would feel they were letting down their coaches, if they're in a team sport, letting down their team members, mm-hmm. Uh, letting down the entire sort of system that has put them through to the point where they've become an Olympic competitor and the families who've made huge sacrifices. So they're really in a very, very difficult position and um, very few have openly said, I'm not going to go. But then you see um, uh, some of the top professional uh, Tennis players, for example, uh, Serena Williams saying, I'm not going to go. The reason being she didn't wish to be separated from her baby daughter for that length of time and uh, 
know, some other circumstances, not precisely objecting to the lack of uh, protection for Olympic athletes. But professional athletes can afford to make those sort of statements and those kinds of decisions. They're not relying on an Olympic success to put themselves on the map and to earn sponsorships, that kind of thing. So, you know, for, for professional tennis, professional golf, that sort of thing, um, it's the Olympics aren't such a big deal compared to the Wimbledon or U.S. Open or whatever. Yeah, exactly. Makes sense. So these games are going to go ahead, and as you said, they've talked all about keeping athletes safe and no spectators and all the rest. Um, what, what's the feeling among observers in terms of how these games are going to go? Can they keep athletes and participants safe? Um, what's your expectation? The, the um, Thomas Bach and, and John Coates are talking about the success of the test events where there were just a few thousand or a few hundred athletes in what they called the bubble and the test events were in, I think, four different sports. So there were four different bubbles with just numbers in the hundreds. The Olympics have 11,000 athletes. Uh, Olympics have 11,000 athletes and then the Paralympics are further four or 5,000. Um, those are enormous bubbles, so to speak. Yeah. Uh, they're not even worthy of being called bubbles. Uh, and there's the critiques of the playbooks, which are the countermeasures that um, the IOC has put in place allegedly to protect the athletes, um, they haven't taken into account the, the major transmission route, which is airborne. Uh, they've been criticised for the, the lack of attention to ventilation. So they started off just doing the routine stuff, you know, washing hands, hand sanitizers, masks, social distancing. And uh, the, in, the events that are held indoors and the fact that the Athletes' Village obviously houses um, thousands of athletes at the same time, uh, ventilation and the general uh, basic protections um, have not been addressed sufficiently and have been widely criticised, um, not just by athletes' advocacy groups, but by medical experts around the world, like four major yeah. medical journals have published their critiques. Ah, boy, oh boy. So I guess we'll just have to see how it goes. Thanks so much for your time, Doctor. I appreciate it. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you very much. That's Dr. Helen Jefferson Lenski, a professor emerita of sociology and equity studies in education at the University of Toronto. Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us.